up only. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, Hello and welcome to Up Only TV. We've got Raul Paul today and Kobe, of course. Really excited about the macro conversation we're surely about to have, and we're glad that you're here. We're also glad to have Blockfolio as our exclusive partner on all things that we do at Up Only TV. Go to uponly.tv slash Blockfolio and make your first trade there, there today. You can swap directly from one asset to the other with zero trading fees. It's uh, as easy as it gets right on your mobile phone. And of course, you can track your portfolio just like you've always known and loved. Thank you so much, Blockfolio, for being our exclusive partner. Let's get to the show. Kobe, hello. Hi, mate. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm all right. Your audio is a bit weird in my ear. I don't know if it's weird everywhere. Um, Oh, my God. There's a dog. There's a dog behind you. (laughs) Two dogs. The coconut girls. (laughs) Oh my god, dog only stream. Yeah, let's go. Um, welcome to the stream, mate. How you doing? How's your day? Yeah, good. Good. Not not too busy. It's been pretty quiet today. I think it's because all the Europeans are watching football. That's kept everything quiet. <laughs> I saw you having like what seemed to be maybe an argument slash banter session with someone on Twitter about watching football. And you said he's got something that's like three days overdue or something. Is this one of your Yeah, that's employees? Remy who works for me. He's a co-founder of Real Vision. And he also works with me on Global Macro Investor, and he's French. So it's the Germany-France match right now. So I was expecting some charts from him on Bitcoin. He's not done them because he's, he's just, watching football. He's, he's probably drunk. Right yeah. <laughs> he's French, so he's generally useless. But at this point, he's really bad. Awesome. Uh, welcome to the stream. We're happy to have you. We, it's been very, people got very excited about this episode. Um, so I'm really excited to chat. Uh, Ledger's excited as well because Ledger likes people who've done serious things in their life, like had serious careers and like understand stuff. He feels like he learns things. Uh, so he's excited. Maybe outed him a little bit as uh, been a little bit too excited now. Sorry, Ledge. That's fine. I'm on, a, I'm on a many years journey of trying to understand macro and I'm not there yet. So I'm hopeful that... Uh, <laughs> that Join the club, mate. Join the club. <laughs> yeah. Um, have, have you realized that crypto cred's voice sounds exactly the same ledger uh no but i like this theory i like where it's going yeah there's a conspiracy theory we can just leave it uh leave it there um (laughs) just let it hang so let's start from the very beginning um for people that are watching that perhaps come from the pure degeneracy part of crypto twitter and uh, are not familiar with your background can you give us the the tldr the tiny version of like how you ended up wasting your time with us fools on this <laughs> makeshift podcast thing. So I was worked in finance for uh, a long time in London, ended up uh, running, starting and running the hedge fund sales business at Goldman Sachs in equities and equity derivatives in the kind of golden age of the hedge funds in the late 90s. Then I went across to my biggest customer, which was a firm called GLG Partners in London, a giant hedge fund firm started and ran their global macro hedge fund. And then decided I had enough of this and moved to Spain, the Mediterranean coast of Spain, where I started writing Global Macro Investor. Everyone sees that as GMI and think it's going to make it, but it's not to do with that. It's Global (laughs) Macro Investor. Um, So I started writing macroeconomic and investment research. Um, I was there over the financial crisis, 2008, and then the European crisis, when we almost lost all the European banks and maybe the EU itself. And... I'd been kind of following the debt super cycle for a best part of a decade and 
I realized that we might not survive the next time we got to a recession. So I started working on arrogantly thinking I could figure out how to make, um, create the world's safest bank because I thought that was the solution we needed. So this was kind of 2012. Um, and then a mate of mine said, actually, you need to look at Bitcoin. So that's uh, a guy called Emil Woods, who's one of the OGs in this space. Um, and Emil um, kind of got me across the line on that. I started investing in it in 2012, uh, 2013. First time I bought it, went up 100% in a month. I'm like, holy shit. I closed it, took profits. I thought I need to figure out what's going on here. Um, but then I got in again and I was basically uh, in until 2017, got out too early because the fork wars, I just thought I don't understand what's going on. Um, and so I got out, I don't know, two and a half thousand, something like that, um, having got in at 200. So it was a good trade, but it obviously went on another 10x from there, <laughs> um, which everyone loves rubbing my face in that. And then... <laughs> And then in that same part of the journey, back in 2014, 15, myself, uh, Remy Tito, who's the guy we were bantering with on Twitter about football, um, Grant Williams and uh, Damien Horner decided to start Real Vision because we thought time was right, that people needed to understand how to take control of their own lives uh, and their own finances and not trust some random person um, just because he's an RIA or something else to manage your money for you. So, so we started Real Vision. And our, our idea was we could democratize the very best financial intelligence by just bringing people access to the kind of guests they'd never, ever get to meet and sit down with them for an hour and talk in depth. And that proved to be a huge hit. People just, this didn't exist before. You know, since then, there's been like 50 podcasts, 100 podcasts, all kind of copied what we did. Shout out. But as we've, <laughs> <laughs> but as we've kind of built on that, um, it's been a hell of a journey. So crypto has been all part of that. And so for me... Um, I had been following this whole journey of crypto since 2012, 2013. I knew that next time we hit a recession, crypto and macro were going to merge because the solution and the problems were all about to hit the road at the same point. And when that happened in March, I've been already kind of ramping up my, um, my knowledge curve into crypto again, um, just before that, trying to figure out, okay, when did I want to get in again? The event happened. It was like, okay, this is the once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh, and that was that. So, Raul, you took a uh, a massive swing at crypto at the same time, like gold bulls were feverish, and they gave you a lot of crap for it uh, in the in the legacy market for taking a really aggressive and I'd say progressive position uh, on Bitcoin being a higher beta play on the same idea. Can you expound on like why you made that decision and what gave you the conviction for it? Um, when I got started, kind of. March, I was short equity markets, betting they were going to go down. I'd started buying Bitcoin. I bought gold and I was long bonds, expecting rates to go to zero, which is essentially all played out. So it was an amazing period of time. Then we kind of settled in the trade. I closed out my short positions in equities because they're always dangerous when the central bank's printing unprecedented amounts of money. And I thought, okay, if they're printing unprecedented amounts of money, how do you capture that? You know, what's the trade to be done? And the trade was this debasement of currency and um and the kind of people wanting to protect their capital so i was still with gold and bitcoin and basically i just started toying around with the charts of bitcoin versus dot 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 and looked at anything and it was like well it's actually outperforming everything on earth and at the time it hadn't started fully outperforming for this cycle the central bank balance sheets but other than that 
it was starting to break down versus gold, equities, NASDAQ, you know, copper. I mean, you name it. And I was like, I called it the, the supermassive black hole that I saw that it was had a high probability of outperforming literally every asset on earth and therefore it was going to suck in all the capital. And so I just closed my gold position, went 100% into Bitcoin at that point, and then eventually broadened out into other digital assets. Yeah, I think that one of the things that interests me there is a lot of people from legacy markets, been around a long time, they saw Bitcoin explode from zero to 20K, and they're like, all right, this is game over. And, you know, it was a, one of those once-in-a-generation type bubbles, and then off you go to the next thing. Um, and some people stuck around are like, no, this is going to still play a role in the macro landscape the next time that this is an appropriate trade. Um what gave you the conviction to 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 fade the like tulip concept versus the like this is going to stick around and be a part of real macro so i'd written in 2013 an article about stock to flow so i kind of thought well if bitcoin is digital gold then it should have the same attribute so i kind of figured out on a rough kind of back of a fag packet piece uh, you know calculation is Okay, how much gold is above ground? How much gets mined? How much do we know is in uh, discoverable um, sources below the earth? And then kind of back that out into Bitcoin. And I figured out with gold at the time is about 1500, uh, Bitcoin should be at a million. And that was, <laughs> I thought, okay. So, and it was, it was at the time, it was at 200 or something stupid. So I'm like, okay, this is the wrong price. So that was the start. I probably wrote the first ever article about the kind of macro valuation of, of Bitcoin. Then, obviously, Plan B independently and brilliantly put together his stock-to-flow model, which, even if it's not 100% perfect, gives us a conceptualization of, of how this might work because of this halving and, and the scarcity of the asset. But it was really discovering Metcalfe's law and how it applied to networks that gave me an understanding of how big this really could be. And once you look at things that are network adoption models, you tend to find they don't mean revert like a commodity that tends to have, you know, not enough um, supply, which is going on right now. Supply meets it, collapses, right? This can't happen in crypto just by definition, particularly in Bitcoin. And then when you look at it, all of these kind of events, they look like bubbles, but they're all part of an exponential trend. So once you put it in a logarithmic chart, it actually looks pretty normal. And that's how you have to get a head around it. And humans don't think in nonlinear terms. It's really hard for us. So, you know, if you take 20 linear steps out of my office here, you know, I get to the other side of the lounge. If I take 20 exponential steps, I go around the world twice or something stupid. So, you know, we can't get our heads around this. But I started looking at those charts, figuring out that, figuring out how network effects apply to this, and then realized the only mean reversion is probably to something like the three or five-year exponential moving average, and that's it. So it's just an exponential curve that keeps going, but flattens out over time as the network effects get more saturated. Yeah, I like that. Kobe, I, still, I can keep going unless you uh, want to butt in. Take it away, mate. Take uh, it away. So the the next critique that you got from the world was because, you know, the Bitcoiners all embraced you on that, right? Um, and then you were like, well, ETH looks pretty cool. <laughs> and you had some guests on, on Real Vision that were talking about different crypto assets. So if you're talking about Metcalf's Law and Stock to Flow and all this Bitcoin stuff, it's a black hole. How do you then choose to diversify into other crypto assets? And, and I mean, is it a I, I, what? I talked a long time about the tokenization of the world, so I kind of got the whole concept. But Bitcoin was the pure play for the economic situation we were in, right? It made the total total sense, right? Easiest narrative, first port of call, um, 
lowest down the risk curve. So that made sense. But as the rally started broadening out, you know, we know that over time people move further out the risk curve. The next one out the risk curve is Ethereum, and then you can go all the way out to some brand new protocol that nobody knows whether it's going to work or not. Or yeah. you know, Coinbase just you know, listed a coin called Shiba. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it could be Shiba, right? So people go out the risk curve, and that's normal, right? It happens in all financial markets. So I figured that was going to happen because that's how people do things. Um, and at the same time, I'd started looking at the chart of Ethereum and thought, this is a really great chart. So I started writing about it, and particularly the ETH Bitcoin cross. So I started writing about it a bit. And hilarious. I mean, I write about it in Global Macro Investor, and they're all kind of institutional guys, hedge fund guys. They're all like, oh, that's fascinating. I put it on Twitter. and was like, how dare you? You're cheating on us. I'm like, what? And then I started getting called a shit coiner and a spammer. And I'm like, wow, if somebody tells me not to do something, I'm absolutely going to go and do it. Um, so, so I started doing the homework on it. And the argument was that John Pfeffer's article um, about, um, about why all coins go to zero except Bitcoin, I just thought, well, this is bullshit. So I went and disproved it and wrote an article about it. And, you know, he built this model around um, around some sort of uh, quant- uh, quantity theory of money model. And it's like, it's never worked in the real world. So why is it going to work in crypto? And why suddenly do you say in that whole article, which is, a gr- which is a great piece, to be honest, but one of the things was, well, obviously, Bitcoin has network effects, but nothing else does. Mm. And therefore, these utility tokens go to zero. I'm like, let me check on that. So I just plotted them out. In fact, to be true, Remy plotted them out because he's better at Excel spreadsheets than I am. And he plotted them out. And guess what? You put on the number of wallets and the price and lo and behold, there's a nice regression. They're basically to do with network effects. And then I looked at Bitcoin and ETH and they looked identical, except ETH was earlier. Then I started putting the price of ETH at 5 million wallets and Bitcoin at 5 million wallets. It was exactly the same price and the price structure was the same. So then I started realizing, well, maybe stocks of flow is actually just an extension of Metcalfe's law. And all of this is network effects. So I started then trying to understand more about Metcalfe's um, law, how it affected the mobile phone industry, the internet, and then stuff like Amazon, Facebook, Google, and all of that. And so that was the huge breakthrough for me, was figuring out all of this and that ETH, was actually gaining faster adoption than Bitcoin. And we know it by the number of developers working on it, the number of applications working on it, and the number of wallet addresses, the rate of increase. So it's growing at about twice the speed of Bitcoin right now. So ETH's growing at about 100% a year, and Bitcoin's growing about 50% a year. The entire digital asset space growing about 113% a year, which is twice the speed that the internet grew at. So this is the fastest adoption of any technology in all recorded history. And ETH is the front runner right now. Now, it doesn't mean it always will be, but right now it's clearly winning network effects. And therefore, I think the network is undervalued. The chat wants to know what Metcalf's law is. There's a picture on the screen that gives the basic idea. It says if. Yeah, so the key thing here is you can have one telephone, two telephones, and I can talk to you. A bunch of us have telephones and we can call each other. But once you create nodes that interconnect with each other, you create millions of touch points. And that is the value of the network because then you can use the network for various things. Mm-hmm. So it's it's that exact bottom chart is what happens when particularly, for example, in this ETH space, as I said, you've got apps, developers, institutions, speculators, 
trader, I mean, everybody, investors, all on that network. That's an incredibly robust network. How do you analyze what's occurring on the network? Like, do you value the type of activity um, differently? For instance, you know, 2017 was, ETH was used for ICOs pretty much. ETH in 2020, uh, we saw DeFi come along. You look on the Bitcoin network, it's primarily, you know, sending and receiving for the, the value of the money. Does, does the type of activity on the network matter to you in terms of valuation? Um, the answer is I don't know. We know that the Bitcoin network is valuable for the attributes of Bitcoin. So there's going to be value, but is there, is there a more finite value to that than there is to a multi-node version of Ethereum? It sounds like Ethereum should be worth more. That's not to take anything away from Bitcoin. It's not like Bitcoin's shit or anything else. It's like these are two different things. And the attributes, the, the network attributes of ETH are probably stronger. Now, can that change? I mean, there's a bunch of people who tell you the Lightning Network, Taproot, and all of this stuff is going to change um, the future of Bitcoin. But I'm not sure that people want to use this pristine asset as the basis of everything. I think they quite like it as the base layer of the lot. Um, and so I don't think it gets adopted as fast as people think, but it will do. And all of these worlds will blur. There's not, you know, it's not either or, or one or the other. Um, I think everything kind of blends in some sort of interoperability and many will have key functions. So as Bitcoin moves towards ETH, which is what um, Taproot and Lightning are doing, ETH is moving towards Bitcoin, which is ETH 2.0. So they're all kind of blending each other's attributes, and that's fine too. It's not a competition. It's it's a it's a kind of symbiotic relationship, I think. So you, you mentioned, you know, as the ball run started, you moved down. Um, you, you increased risk basically to increase uh, returns. You moved from Bitcoin to ETH. How far into the um, into the gray zone of those assets did you go? Like, did you get involved into? ETH competitors? Did you go down all the way to dog money? or? Uh, yeah, let me talk you through that journey because it's, it's interesting. Um, how I dealt with it was, okay, I wanted to allocate money into a basket of other alts. <clears throat> I didn't know which ones. I knew ETH and Bitcoin I wanted. I have no idea which other project is going to get proper network effects. Everybody kind of screams about them all day on Twitter, but there's not many of them that have yet. Some of them are starting to. So I just said, right, I'm just going to choose a kind of basket of 10. And I'm going to have a mix of protocols like Cardano, Polkadot for interoperability. I'm going to choose some DeFi stuff. I'm going to choose just a bunch of stuff and just watch it. Um, and they all went up 250% or something in a month and a half. I'm like, okay, that's quite fun. Um, and then I... I was now fully invested. I had no cash left and I got another slug of cash in. And so I thought, okay, what do I want to do here? So I added to my ETH because I thought, okay, this is the biggest bet I wanted. Switch more Bitcoin into ETH. Um, and then I thought, okay, I want to get involved in some other stuff, stuff that um, I want to make some proper macro bets. And I also want to enjoy some of the fun. So the two enjoying the fun that I want to learn from, I bought Doge <laughs> because I got, I've got a thesis on it. And the reason being is I don't think people understand that it has a higher probability of network effects than people imagine because you've got so many retail investors in it. All you need to do is, is create applications for it and you've changed the entire game. 
So it's one half the war. So I thought, you know, that's interesting. And everyone tells me I shouldn't do it, so I'm going to do it, which I told you before is a feature of my of how I think about things. Because I, generally when people become overly defensive, they've not thought it through. So that was my idea with that. Um, and then I wanted to start placing bets in um, what I think is the future of it all, where the biggest applications are going to lie. And I'm actually not that interested in the protocols. I don't really care. I can't get excited. I'm not te technical enough. So, you know, people can argue all day about, you know, who's going to win what war. I kind of like the interoperability. I'll buy a basket of that stuff. And that makes sense because that kind of connects everything. But really what I'm interested in is um, social tokens in the metaverse because I think that's where the consumer meets crypto at scale. Mm. So I started buying baskets of stuff in that there's, there's less available tokens they're much smaller um and most of them are outside of the kind of twitter or reddit noise you know they're kind of stuff that's being built that's interesting that we just haven't seen huge groups of people getting attracted to so i started getting attracted to that stuff so that's really where my focus my kind of intellectual focus lies is in all of that I kind of, we all get the Bitcoin thing and it's kind of, it's a bit boring now because we kind of get it. You you put the trade on and DeFi to me, you know, I get it. You know, I'm a finance guy, but I've never been a yield guy. I've never cared about yield. Um, and in a market that, you know, Bitcoin goes up 213% a year annualized. Why do I care about 5% yield or 8% yield? It just, you know, and assuming a risk that I don't know I've got. So DeFi, get it. And of course it's going to scale and of course it's going to be huge. But for me, it just kind of doesn't grab my attention, really. So, But changing the world's business model massively gets my attention. Yeah, I can introduce you to some good pool twos with an extremely high <laughs> av annual yield if you're, if you're so interested. I, I like what you said about Doge as well. I'm uh, a big believer in a future Doge smart chain or on board, uh, like more people to DeFi in a, in a, on, on that chain than you would on, on... Yeah, because don't forget, it's become accessible. So it's become accessible... It's become a bit of a joke, and we know that that actually drives adoption right now. And then uh, Mark Cuban started adopting it for the uh, Mavs merch and tickets. And I was like, huh, okay, that's interesting. Because, you know, Mark's a good guy, and he gets this stuff. Um, and then, you know, Elon's all over this. And my guess is he's going to try and capture that attention of all of these people that invested in this joke and turn it into something real. Then they feel part of it. So, you know, whether it's used for streaming payments for, from Tesla cars or whatever it is, doesn't really matter. The probability of a network of that size now being turned into an application, is extremely high. Yeah, I, I, it, I, it makes sense. I think the, the scarce resource in crypto or even in financial markets now, it's not capital, but it's attention. So anything that can divert attention to something is way, way, way more valuable um, than than money because people have finite attention as a finite amount of people and capital, they can just make more of it anytime they want to click their fingers. Um, and it's, it's, it's shown a lot and we've seen this, you know, sort of post-truth era uh, move into like a maybe a post-value era where stuff has value if everyone's paying attention to it at the same well, time that's decoupled perhaps from a real like a, some kind of reality well you know we transitioned from facebook google uh, everything else to a attention economy so you know your attention is what's being monetized and i think we move one stage further which is the kind of the web 3.0 idea where you're in control of monetizing your own attention and community is the most valuable thing of all so I think community, because that's where you get concentrated attention. 
and so community is what these social tokens are all about. And where are these communities going to meet in the future? They're going to meet the future in the metaverse. Um, and so these two things are gigantic colliding forces. And it's, I think it's the future of, as I said before, all business models. I think one of the big things that's interesting about that with uh, that attention economy and, and monetizing communities is if you just go beyond just the value potential of maybe a social token, if you just think of what makes a particular group valuable, it's when you can target them really well. So if you pull to get people together based on similar interests, then it actually makes those eyeballs much more valuable to whoever's paying for it. If it's an advertiser or whoever else, like you can demand much more for real vision ads if you were to run them because you have a exact type of audience that watches real vision. That's right. But what's more powerful about this business model is you're also letting them share in the economic benefits. Right. Right. That's game changing because you're turning a audience, which is, let's say, Netflix, into an engaged audience that has multiple connection points with each other and care about the growth of the network. So that creates very robust business models. Yeah. And the value of that, whether it's ads or, you know, sharing the value of that network as a whole, the fact that it's so targeted makes it much more valuable than this really broad brush of, you know, Facebook or targeting everyone yeah, and it puts the creators or the people at the center of it um it aligns their incentives with their fans or audience or community um and what happens is you have to share less of the economics with third parties bit facebook google because you have direct control over your audience or direct input into your audience and they have direct input to you yeah, there's a nice article written about this concept, uh, the the ownership economy. I think it's by Variant. Was it Jesse from Variant Fund? Um, wrote an article on this that I read a while ago, and it, uh, it explains a lot of what you're saying really well. We'll slap it into the into the show notes for for the post show. Um, but you spoke a little bit about uh, the debt supercycle. So supercycle has been mentioned on Up Only TV again. If you're watching in the chat, take a shot. But um, you talk about the the debt supercycle and um, you know, we've been reached this point where over the last year, valuations have gone crazy. Everything's pumped. Pokemon cards have got valuation have gone crazy. You know, dog money's gone crazy. Meme stocks have gone crazy. Um, how does how do you see the next few years playing out, uh, given the scenario we're in now with a bunch of things with like insanely inflated valuations, oil prices going up, food prices going up, etc.? So I think most traditional macro guys thought that the next recession, which was the one we've just had, was going to be the end of the debt super cycle, right? It was all going to blow up. And everybody had been expecting it. And what happened is it didn't. And you need to ask why. So I looked at this and you hear everybody talking about these bubbles, you know, you know everything's a bubble. Is it? When you compare equities to gold... It's kind of pretty much in line with the last 100-year average or real estate to gold or real estate to equities or any of this stuff. And I started realizing that none of those seem out of line. And normally, it would show it. So 1999, 2000, equities look way out of line versus everything. It was a clear bubble. So I'm like, are we looking at this wrong? Are we thinking about it wrong? And I started to think, you know what? I think we've got the wrong denominator because I'd started using a chart of Gold versus a basket of 27 currencies, not including the dollar. And gold would, every time there was kind of big QE, gold would ratchet upwards versus these currencies, trade sideways a bit, ratchet upwards. I'm like, this is interesting because 
Gold is telling me that these 27 currencies have basically fallen 65% since 2008. So then I, I thought, oh, maybe fiat money's the thing that, that's being devalued. And everyone's looking for inflation. You know, we're going to see 20% inflation rates and hyperinflation. And maybe we're looking at the wrong thing, that it's the value of fiat money that's devaluing and making assets look expensive. So I multiplied all of these things out by the Fed balance sheet or the G4 central bank balance sheets. And lo and behold, it all looks pretty sensible. It's kind of as you imagine in your head. The world changed in 2008, and we kind of wiped off a lot of performance of assets, and they've pretty much gone sideways ever since. And so I then went through all the assets and realized there was only two things that had actually outperformed the balance sheets. One was tech stocks because of, they were all Metcalfe's law models, and we're going through the biggest technological revolution probably in all recorded history in the shortest period of time. And the other was crypto, which is part of the same story, but you know, was earlier in its phase and um, seeing massive network adoption, adoption effects. So I think it was to do all to do with this denominator effect. So the debt super cycle, therefore, maybe it ends with, with a whimper and not a bang, because armed with this information, we're all migrating across to this new world of digital assets where we've got recorded ownership, over collateralization, and a bunch of other stuff that makes it quite different. So if that's the case, then slowly, if we all transition over, you can basically wipe out the rest of, rest of it via the you know, devaluation of, of currencies and other stuff, and it won't destroy people as much as it would have been without the new kind of digital asset system being built in parallel. So how do you think that practically plays out in the assets that uh, regular people, retail people tend to be invested in? Like if you just look at the next 10 years of equities, for example, like do you think we have a Japan-style risk of just you know, going down, not making new highs, being sideways for a really long time? Or what do you think? No, I don't, happen? unless the Fed stops printing money because we're going to debase the, the denominator. Now, will equities trade sideways versus the Fed balance sheet? Probably. Will tech stocks? Almost certainly not. They will almost certainly outperform just because of the mechanics of what's happening right now. I'd call it the exponential age. We've got a bunch of these exponential trends all happening at the same time from, you know, AI to robotics to uh, EV to green energy to distributed computing power to crypto uh, currency. I mean, it's a crazy amount of stuff that's coming. So I think that outperforms. Um, as we transition to this new future, pushed by government stimulus behind it, you know, government stimulus is pushing all of this. So um, I don't see that. I think equity markets go a lot higher over time if we remain with the central banks continuing to use their balance sheet, which they have to do because there's too much debt. And if they step back, the economy starts slowing down again, and then they live in fear. So in that theory, the, it's the cash orders who are really struggling or maybe the bond holders who are uh, really failing? Yeah. Um, and people thought the bondholders would fail because rates went up and they'd lose money. The bondholders are going to fail because they're compounding 2.5% returns or 1.5% returns. Meanwhile, the balance sheet's growing at 15%. So basically, their purchasing power, it, you know, they're down 13.5% on their purchasing power. So if you're a baby boomer going to retirement, you're basically screwed in what you can afford in due course. Because assets, you know, why do assets matter to us? Assets are basically future consumption that we park. So we park our money into Bitcoin and it gives us future consumption later, which is for retirement or to buy a house, whatever it is. All assets basically have the same attribute. Um, and so if asset prices 
if if you're if you're able to afford less of these assets because wages aren't going up and the Fed keeps pushing up the price of them, then your future ability to consume goes down. So I, you're all fucked in retirement. So you need to stay ahead of that trend. What are, what are some um, signals that you will be looking for or some triggers that would make you think my thesis is wrong? Like, um, what are like some signs that people should look out for to go, okay, the, um, this, something's fundamentally different and, uh, like so, maybe government strategy, government, um, uh, policies changing towards, um, like government economic policies changing or, um, just some other signal. Um, so there's outside. two is when am I wrong and what could cause my thesis to become wrong? So when am I wrong? So I've, you know, most of us thought this for a while, didn't want to believe that central bank balance sheets were the driver of asset prices. We thought it was like a spurious com- correlation, everything else. And now it's becoming quite clear to most of us that it's now beyond a coincidence. So if the central bank continued to print and equity prices fell, then that would disprove the idea. It's like something has changed. So, you know, fell for an extended period, not just a quick sharp sell-off. But, you know, if they went down, um, you know, as Ledger said, go down and stay down, but the Fed keep printing, then that is wrong. The other thing is, what could the politicians or the, or the central banks do to change the outcome? And my argument with this was that if they, let's say, all joined a world coin, which is this basket of central bank digital currencies... And to be part of that basket, and why they want a basket is means it's less volatile. So if you're South Africa, you're not worrying about the dollar going up or down. You're Brazil, you know, you've basically got the stable trading currency, which is what Facebook suggested That's with Libra. Fed Libra. And it, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they all went, no way, because this is a very powerful thing. <laughs> That's our so imagine if, <laughs> imagine if the IMF said, okay, we're going to do this world coin. To be a member, you can only increase your money supply by 2% a year. Okay, that changes the equation because then it looks more like Bitcoin than it does anything else. Now, we know central banks are not good for their word and they will cheat and it will go wrong, but that would cause a that would cause an issue for Bitcoin's narrative. Does it change anything for the crypto narrative? Not a thing because that crypto narrative is actually the digital exchange of value and it's nothing to do with the store of value argument of Bitcoin necessarily. They're two different things. Wasn't the euro itself kind of the uh fractional version of that? Yeah, so it started with something called the ERM mechanism, so the ex- uh, European Exchange Rate Mechanism. And what that was was a basket of currencies that were trading in a band within next to each other, and they had certain things they had to fulfill, you know, what their budget deficit could be, whatever. Now, that almost fell apart a couple of times. A few countries got ejected from it for breaking the rules and not doing it right. Uh, and then eventually it turned into the euro. So, you know... It's been there. Now, people hate the euro, but it kind of works for a lot of countries. Mm. I'm still too triggered because WorldCoin was a coin on crypto in 2012, <laughs> 2013. Uh, that did, there was like some weird, they did some weird Schambeck bank thing on top of it. Anyway, it went to zero. I held some WorldCoin. It went down. So when you said WorldCoin, I was like, oh, God, not that. It's a different WorldCoin. It's <laughs> yeah, not I'm that composed. One. Who knows? Maybe they use Doge. <laughs> Those smart chain, it's the future. Um, 
So that that makes uh, a bunch of sense. The other thing that's um, been going on in Bitcoin recently and in sort of the um, the talk of, of like really large macro trends is the adoption by countries and the El Salvador legal tender um, tender news. Have you processed that? Has that uh, was that like a surprise to you? Is that something that you expected along the way? No, I think I'd, I'd even I've been writing about this for about a year, saying the first country is going to do something is one of the Latin American countries. A kind of knowing that region, knowing how scarred they are by currency devaluations. El Salvador's interesting. I don't think it's as clear cut a case as everybody thinks it is. And it's interesting because it's already dollarized. So it's not like they had a, their own shitcoin that was getting devalued. They'd already gone through the process. So what was the real value here to get out of the dollar? Well, you don't want to have a 70 vol asset as your base layer. What you really need is it's remittances. I think it's to get money into the country easier um, and other things. Now, it'll change over time. There'll be uses for it. But, you know, people buying coffee with Bitcoins, it doesn't make any sense. Um, Now, using the lightning uh, layer to send stuff around, okay, that's fine. No problem because it's dollar to dollar, but just use Bitcoin rails. That's that's all okay. But so the jury's out. Yes, it's interesting. Yes, it's a, a step in the road in the right direction. Um, to where the world is going. Uh, But, you know, the bigger game to be played is the central bank digital currencies. This is an absolute game changer. And how do you think that's going to that's gonna play out itself? Because there's been a lot of talk about central bank digital currencies, even back in 2016, 2017, I think. I, I think the first one I heard about was like the China program. I've heard about the digital pound here in Britain um, being floated a few times. And, you know, I, I often read like, countries building national stable coin, but then there never seems to be actual actual progress and development or uh, any sort of pilot running anywhere. Um, How do you think this plays out in practice? Is it going to start from, um, is China going to be the first with? uh, Yeah, China's going to be the first. There's a few others practice ones going on. I think Sweden's got something going. Singapore's got something going. Uh, There's one in the Bahamas. There's one in Barbados. So there's a few up and running uh, being kind of tested. It's very clear that this is where everybody's going. I mean, the ECB have made it absolutely clear. The Fed have made it clear. The Bank of England made it really clear. So it's happening. The issue is, do you build all the infrastructure in the government sector and keep try and keep up with the ridiculous pace of change that's going on in the private sector, or do you use private sector rails? I think they're all going to move to private sector rails in the end. I think it makes no sense. I think they can create the asset, create the on-ramp and off-ramp with the government and the tax system and everything else. Maybe even they create government wallet that's interoperable with your own wallet. And you'll probably be able to secure, I think the ECB is just about to do this now, uh, Europe is, which is your own identity and everything else within this wallet. Um, and that's your interaction with the state. I think that's absolutely fine. And then, you know, whatever mechanisms of transferring that that around, because, you know, now the world is interoperable, I don't care. If I send you a euro from here, I don't care whether it goes on Bitcoin, XRP, or any other rails. It doesn't matter as long as you get what you want in the end. But again, the world's so worried about, what, it could be XRP, that's outrageous. I'm like, I don't care. I just want to, the actual problem you're solving is me sending you a euro instantaneously. It's not about what protocol it runs on. They yeah, just don't that's want Brad Darlinghouse to get to be like the next Jeff Bezos is all. <laughs> well, so that makes me think there's a higher probability than you expect. Yeah. And I've got no skin in that game. But when people tell you you can't, I bought it I bought XRP, did really well from it because of that stupid 
you know, be, you, you, you get cancelled. Yeah, I, w- I want to if you dare talk about it. So you've, you've said this on the show. Kobe, you said this yesterday. I want to bring this up because both of y'all have made the same point within 24 hours. Kobe tweeted a C.S. Lewis quote in terms of what useful trading alpha he has. When the whole world is running towards a cliff, he who is running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. So both of y'all have talked about basically just fading the crowd or fading the common sentiment as like a real reason to take a position. Can y'all exp- uh, expand on that a bit? Yeah, I don't think being a contrarian for the sake of being contrarian is a good strategy because you tend to get run over. Um, It's trying to isolate when everybody's telling you something and you don't see it being confirmed in the price is something really interesting. Mm. Um, And it's usually because people have gotten lazy into their assumptions on why they're doing something. So we're seeing it right now with inflation. It's, you know... Everybody's inflation, Twitter's freaking out, everybody's yelling at the screen, and it tells me they're probably wrong. Um, Same with the dollar's going to collapse narrative. It's like, usually, usually I get those bets quite right. Um, Now, is this start of a mega trend or anything else? I don't know. And the good thing with this whole crypto space is, even though it's noisy within the space and you're kind of fighting the crowd, the crowd is all going one way. When you step back and go out to the high street and go and speak to somebody, you realize that this is just a noisy little bubble we're in and we're actually still pushing against this <laughs> huge uh, ecosystem of, of normal people and institutions that aren't involved in this and don't want to know. So you need to step back sometimes and figure out who you're trying to fade here. So we're still trying to fade. we're still trying to fade the existing system as opposed to the crowd, but within the crowd as well, when everybody piles into one thing and tells you you can't look at anything else, is usually the time to buy it. I like that fact. Like, I've been outside, I've chatted to some people. It's like, <laughs> that's when you know you're killing it. Like, you, I was able to step away from the screen. It's like, I haven't stopped looking at the screen for eight years, mate. I'm, look, I'm trying to get there one day, one day. Um, yeah, I, I like the C.S. Lewis quote because uh, a bunch of the time when a narrative um, gets larger than reality and people become complacent to observing sort of the factual reality of the world and instead rely on the narrative that they've heard from everyone else there's often an opportunity in uh, picking that apart and then going, well, actually, what's happening? How is this dissimilar to the narrative? If everyone believes this narrative, then actually people are positioned incorrectly for the reality of the world and you can uh, normally uh, do very well in them. I bought Ripple at the start of this bull run and my entire thesis was that last cycle they had the dumbest community by far and those people were defo coming back. <laughs> I wanted to sell my <laughs> Ripple to them once more. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I sold it all on the SEC news. So where's the dumbest community now? Um, right. I... I mean, it's honestly a very high competition these days. <laughs> no, I, I, so it's difficult to say. Um, I, I think the like the real like post post reality, post truth, post value communities are some of the worst. So the like weird Ponzi economic uh, things, where it's like it's going to go up because the tokenomics suggests it's going to go up, and we punish you if you sell. I think those are the dumbest communities. Um, it's like but the various all- BSC scams that came about, like. 
save the world. Yeah, but then they're all they're all like billionaires now, so it's who like I can't say I can't say they're dumb. Um and also the chains where um the marketing and the the things people harp on about are often disconnected from the actual technology or the reality. So things like Cardano, where the, um, the marketing is bigger than the, the reality or detached from the reality of the technology. Um, so here, here's a question for you. Is one I'm trying to figure out is what looks amazing on paper, but I just cannot get my head around it, is Definity and the, the internet computer. Internet computer. I did not realize until yesterday that Definity had rebranded to internet computer. Uh isn't it double branded? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. I think it's like Ripple and XRP kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is. I, I think that the biggest thing that happens in this space is that uh, insiders and venture capitalists inflate stuff so much and then just distribute it on plebs for years. Like people who bought Definity early and built it, and it may have a lot of engineering behind it. I have no idea. But it's at such a huge multiple versus the people that funded it initially that they're all extremely happy to dump it forever. It's down 90% since the day it listed on Coinbase. And it listed on Coinbase day one of like the token generation or whenever it became public. And they're still in profit by multitudes, like thousands of percent profit for those venture capitalists. So they're very happy to sell on anyone forever. And I hey, look, what's interesting me is... Capitalists in that round, mate. What's that? Is, are you people, one of them? Not just venture capitalists in that round. There were some normal people in there. Yeah, they yeah, there were. <laughs> there was. What's interesting to me now is okay. We've launched this big mega thing with massive money behind it. All the big names, you know, people are offloading. It's down ninety odd percent. Now the question is: is okay? Does it have any probability of getting any network effects? because the money they've raised is still there, right? So yeah. they can build out an ecosystem over the next five years. The question is, is there, not for this cycle, but is there something in this? Because if it's big, if it's real and does what is talked about, I mean, it's massive if it gets adoption. I just, I'm just starting to go, start thinking the other way around on this now. It's like, yeah. hmm, okay, I, I think it's maybe possible. something to look at. I think it's possible, but I think the cathedral and the bizarre concept plays out pretty frequently here in blockchains where they spend forever building the cathedral but they don't have like the network effects are more organic and ethereum and bitcoin both are garbage from a like processing time transactions and all that stuff but they have they're the bizarre and they evolve over time the technology comes to solve the problems due to the network being used whereas all these networks i don't care what they are like eos uh ada internet computer uh they're like building it as this gigantic cathedral but there's nobody that wants to visit it and they, yeah i think that the that's much harder build it they will the build it they will come strategy is not as good as a scrappy community who builds onto something imperfect and tries to create something better tends to be more self-sustaining i think you're right i do think there is something really interesting though in building um uh, in when these projects launch, because you're talking a lot about Metcalf law and network effects, and I think the viral coefficient of a, uh, a user or a an investor increases. If you can, you can imagine the viral coefficient of an Ethereum investor, um, and you can imagine that viral coefficients change over time. Uh, and just imagine it going through the roof in a bull run, right? So like. Uh, 2016 through 2017, the ICO initial ICO investors will, will had a relatively um, stable but decent um, uh, like 
k uh, value and then over time as the ball run continues and it's getting frothier you'll feel more and more confident telling your friends you should use this technology you should buy this shit it's going to go up and then post the top maybe for six months a viral coefficient remains relatively high because people can't recognize tops very well and then at the bottom of the bear market the viral coefficient probably drops down to just um like developers like in it for the tech people etc and for the internet computer to launch relatively mid late in a um in a bull run at valuation because they've got such a low float low float so the valuation overall is so high the fully diluted valuation which means vcs insiders seed sale regular human beings um are all just selling everything that they've got as soon as it vests uh, and it goes down 90 percent and it drives down this viral coefficient because people are like that thing's a scam look at the chart that <laughs> looks fucking terrible uh it's just launched and gone down and it gives it this sort of uh bad initial um name whereas if you launched at the bottom of a bear market sure the initial viral coefficient may have been low but the steady build-up over time allows it to reach some uh some kind of froth maybe um so I do think there's a bunch of uh, interesting stuff in figuring out how projects done, have done versus when they've launched because Filecoin yeah. raised a similar amount of money, maybe, um, but launched a year or so earlier um, and therefore had this like hugely stable upgraph. Yeah, because I think all of these have S-curves in the middle, right? And the S-curve is the existential crisis is do you survive or not survive? Um and you'll, they all go through numerous ones. You know, Bitcoin's been through a load of these, and arguably it just went through an S curve. You know, this, you know, this uh, late spring, early summer. Um, and you know, when they survive, it, you, the Lindy effects take hold, and the, the network becomes more robust. So it's clear that the uh, that that um, internet computer is going through an S curve moment. It could be a total failure, or something may come out of the ashes. Um, I think the time, yeah, as you said. If you can launch slower, I think that's the thing, is launch slower, you can build better than the big launch. I, just- I, th- I think, too, just if you have so many people who've waited for a long time for liquidity and for internet computer definity, those investments were like in 2017 initially, so that's a long hold for them, so they're willing to take the multiple. You look at another example, and this is public markets, you go to Coinbase, uh, people invested in Coinbase a long, long time ago, and they're in tremendous profits. Even the latest, like Series D type rounds or whatever, maybe valued the shares like sub fifty dollars. So even though Coinbase generates a hilarious amount of quarterly profit, it didn't prevent the stock from dumping immediately and continuing to dump once those people started getting liquidity. Yeah, and also screwed up Bitcoin for the rest of us as well because <laughs> yeah. I, I, I tweeted about this. I said, "Look, the moment this comes out, you're now going to absorb billions of dollars of institutional capital that would have had to figure out Bitcoin. And now they can just buy Coinbase." So <laughs> we've seen that, and that money didn't come into the market. I mean, all new flows from institutions basically stopped for three months from March onwards because this bloody thing launched. I wrote about it, and I still didn't believe myself, and it was dead right. But- <laughs> We're yeah. just getting Nas, just getting dumped on by Nas. I, yeah. I love it. When you look at the, uh, the, I mean, the chart, like the day Coinbase released was like the wick on the weekly chart that marked the uh, high. Oh, yeah. It just looks like a liquidity so, trap. So, so here's another one that I think is setting itself up because I'm a cynic and I've seen this play out a million times before. I think ETH 2.0 is going to end up being by the rumor, sell the fact because every person who supported it and staked it is going to take their stake out at some point and realize some gains. 
So the chances are that, let's say, ETH 2.0 March, uh, launches in March next year. That's probably the top for a while for Ethereum. Just I because they'll launch, I reckon they'll launch towards the end of this year, start of next year. But uh, yeah, I so agree, like, it could be a macro top for ETH as well. I also thought EIP 1559 would be a macro top for ETH, but I think it's also almost going to be a non-event now, but that might be hopium. Well, yeah, don't can't tell or it might have been a low point you know it, it depends where it hits in the cycle and you know things sold off before it so actually it might be a, a positive catalyst where it might have been a negative catalyst where we at all-time highs and it comes out it's the weird psychology of crowds right and like you've talked about before kobe whether the uh impact on eth emissions is you know all the models play out true right if if eth emissions really go down 90 percent then it's kind of hard for it to go down for a sustained period of time just based on the new demand on the network. But if any of those are wrong, like what if it only goes down, emissions only go down by like 20 or 30 percent uh, and it essentially disappoints on that? Or what if layer twos are so well adopted that so much activity uh, moves off of layer one and you don't have the same fee burn uh, as you expected? Those types of things could cause it problems. Yeah, I think layer twos actually like relatively well adopted now i think it's a, a bad layer two in that it's like matic and not really a layer two yeah but the amount of transactions on there are like greater than the eth network or something silly we're seeing um, that everywhere tra- transactions are cheap actually like bsc eclipsed ethereum in transactions even though like everything on bsc was a scam people flocked to it because it was cheaper and accessible and it was the heat of the bull run moving down the down the line of assets uh polygon I think the assets are better. Solana, I think the assets are better, but like we're seeing a massive increase of transactions and activity on those chains because they're accessible. I mean, it's still, even though, um, you know, fees are like at all, all time lows for the year, uh, on the Ethereum network, it's still relatively expensive. Like you might spend 20, 30 bucks to make a transaction that prices some people out, um, where they can spend pennies on alternative chains. And hopefully people who are layer two only on Ethereum will, consider ETH layer twos, native layer twos, um, consider them an ideal place to, to participate in the network. But also, you know, it's it's this alone is is the reason why the space broadens out. No chain can be everything to everybody. So sure, you know, Bitcoin is X and it, it has its rigidities and ETH has its problems and it's it spreads out. And that's great for the space overall because it gives more people different solutions and then you get this interoperability layer. And before you know it, we've built a really rich, deep ecosystem that is not, you know, these two chains dominating everything. I think that's great. There's an interesting parallel to this, like, uh, chain domination, to something that you were talking about earlier. You said you're very interested in the metaverse and social tokens. Um, How do you see the metaverse specifically playing out because i really i'm not very visual uh, i don't have a very visual imagination so i struggle to imagine the metaverse uh hopefully it's not just me sitting looking at my computer i like to imagine something a little bit more magical um but Kobe needs maybe a full you can body crush those dreams with haptic yeah I, yeah like ready play one that's that's <laughs> yeah. my idea so, of the metaverse so there's there's a bunch of trends going on um firstly apple is reorientating everything around ar so they're building an entire interactive map of the world, which is uh, augmented reality. They're, they're building 3D designable objects that can be embedded in stuff. There's all sorts. They've got this spatial sound now that's come out on iTunes, which again is really, it's not about listening to music. It's about having a 3D space of sound around you like we live in in the real world, right? So that's hurtling. Basically, Facebook is cornering the entire technology for, for VR, 
that's going on as well. So there's these mega trends that are going on. Then it dawned on me, you know, I've been speaking to people like Pierce Kicks um, from Delphi who've been talking me through the metaverse. And I was trying to get my head around a lot of this stuff. And then I happened to be talking to somebody about something and they flicked me over a coordinate within CryptoVoxels. And that coordinate gave me an avatar, just a, you, you kind of just borrowed avatar. You turn up and it was in a NFT store, which had records, uh, records playing, videos on the wall, shit going on. And I'm like, oh, well, that's the end of websites. <laughs> you know, a 2D web, website, that's just not going to cut any longer. Um, and then once I realized that, I then realized you can create your own space in it. So right now, you know, we've got these stupid windows open on our screens and you're closing them and opening them. Well, you can actually just design a 3D space with your Twitter feed up, you know, your um, Telegram, video, your Netflix, your research all in one space. And before you know it, you've got rid of platforms too. And you create your own platforms. You know, so I think are, that's where it's all coming. You remember the Google Glass uh, thing that was everybody mocked and I wonder if we'll look back and think like that was basically the equivalent of like the bag phone or uh, like the, the Zach Morris say by the bell brick phone and we'll end up seeing AR play out with like much more seamless glasses where it looks like sure. a normal pair of glasses but instead sure. you got the whole the whole thing like right there in front of your eyeballs. Yeah so Apple are working on that too so as you say, this is just the first bit of technology. It was the shot across the bow. You know, how would people think about this? You know, this is not going away. And um, talk about network adoption effects. As the whole world mo moves to AR and then VR, I mean, literally every single person has to change their business model and how they operate in the world, how they socialize. And we're already seeing it with, you know, kids on Fortnite. I mean, they live there and they have, you know, everything has value. Digital has value. The whole world's going to go through this whole transition. They just don't know it yet. Uh, and you talk to people about it and they're like, oh my God, this is so dystopian. It doesn't have to be dystopian. It can actually be, you know, an augmented reality can be actually very powerful for you. Uh, so, yeah, I just think it's massive. And seeing, you know, when you listen to people like Tim Sweeney of Epic Games talking about it, I mean, the amount of money that's going into this and how people are thinking about it. The uh, CEO of uh, NVIDIA was saying, well, the future of all of this is, you know, the future of all kind of um, chip technology and everything else is obviously the metaverse. Kobe, I think you can't get to the metaverse until you've got enough processing power. I think he's saying I'm going to be able to sell my MeBit someday. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, your MeBit is going to zero. Um, already is, I, already I is. It's already at zero, it's made it. But where it belongs, find its true value. Um <laughs> I think it makes sense because, like, I, I like the reference to Fortnite because Fortnite very much became, like, the, the third place for the kids, right? Like, they hang out at home, they hang out at school, and then they hang out in this place with their friends. And, you know, for a, a generation, it was, like, maybe the mall. I think that's what they call it in America, like a shopping center or something. Yeah, or, exactly right. Uh, the skate park. And, and that sort of transitioned into being this digital space, and they, they play video games together. And it's not so much about the video game. It's about doing something with your friends uh, and hanging out with your friends and chatting to them while you just participate in some activity and the activity don't matter so much. And um, for me, when I was younger, it was a little bit more uh, solitary, but it was like RuneScape. You had your RuneScape mates and you'd chat to them uh, while like cutting a tree um, down or something. Um, and it, it means that these sort of uh, 
versions of a metaverse or, or a third place, at least a digital third place, have existed for a while. Um, but what I find interesting is like in the in the parallel to the um, the multi chain world, I guess is there going to be one metaverse? Is there going to be like a metaverse that's spun up by you know? Uh, Bill Gates and then another metaverse that's spun up by Elon and Grimes and then another metaverse that uh, like Ledger comes up with in his own time um, full of VTubers or is it going to be like one united world like how how do you see that uh, that working it's exactly the same as crypto so you've got already you know there's the crypto versions of Decentraland crypto voxels and a whole bunch of these things then we've got the massive game versions of which there's tons of these and what's happening is everyone's working on interoperability. So I can take an asset from one to another. And then you're creating whole economic systems um, that you know money can flow in and out. You get network effects within them. And there's the larger network effect of a larger metaverse that you can then exchange value in, live in, earn value, which is the most important thing. If you can start earning value in it, which you can already, and move it around this world, okay, then you're driving all sorts of economic benefits and also forcing these metaverses to improve their experience for their citizens, because if not, the money leaves and it collapses the economy. It's fascinating. I think it's a whole layer of GDP growth that doesn't exist. I think it's like discovering the Americas all over again. (laughs) GDP growth that doesn't exist. I really like that. That's great. I often feel like that about crypto. It's like a whole bunch of money that doesn't exist. Um, So, that's super interesting i think like i've been thinking for a while about an idea what's that what's the woman who created the blood company that didn't that wasn't a real company oh uh, elizabeth holmes yeah yeah what was the company called theranos theranos that was it yeah i've been thinking for a while what's a theranos style company that i can build and raise money for (laughs) and spend like 15 years making zero progress but the investors don't really care because it's so ambitious that's what cardano is <laughs> no, but I can do. I'm just going to build the Oasis. I'm going to build the Oasis. Yeah. Look, I read Ready Player One. I read Ready Player Two. That seems technically ambitious. It could take 20 years if I make no progress. That's that's a low probability bet. Um, that's what I'm going to do after this call. I'm getting straight on with investors. I'm going to I'm going to make the Oasis. You could raise plenty of capital, endless endless rounds of capital for that. Yeah, yeah. Because, I'm building the Oasis, dude. Because in the end, you know, people think investors are stupid. But in the end, it's just an option because if you actually did build it, it's worth a couple of trillion dollars. Yeah. So that's not going to mind. It's a low probability bet. We'll throw him some money. It's fine. That's right. And then I'm going to pre You can make a few hundred million out of it and just disappear off to the Cayman Islands. <laughs> I'll, I'll, pre-sell, I'll pre-sell land as NFTs, make another hundred million, and then I'll spack it and I'll make another hundred million. There you I'll, go. Roll, do you know any good places in the Caymans to hide after this is all done? Because the scheme is public and open right now. So, unfortunately, this is not a very good country for that because you know they uh, it's even opening a bank account takes about six months here. It's it's miserable. So you you probably have to hide out in Costa Rica or somewhere. Mm. All right, that sounds nice. Costa or Delaware. Americans are all massive tax evaders. They just go to Delaware. Um, all right, I got some questions from. I posted a tweet that said, uh, "What questions do you want to ask?" So I got a, I got a couple, but the first one's very easy. It just says, "What's his skincare routine?" <laughs> <laughs> I actually have used um, natural oil, so almond almond oil. 
natural um, oil is quite open-ended so i'm glad you quite glad you quite <laughs> classified which not just any right, not, natural oil yeah not uh oil from the engine uh yeah no there you go almond oil all right so some and that person's i'm sure very happy that you answered that because i'm imagining they've been questioning it for a while and never got an answer so there you go i'm glad up only tv could ask some serious questions um McCullough says, JP Morgan said yesterday they believe being cash intensive at the beginning of high inflation and in anticipation of rate rise is the wisest strategy, whereas common crypto talk is to be high quality scarce assets. Please explain how JP Morgan's strategy makes sense. Because he's talking about the balance sheet of the bank. So if they're too far out the curve, the bond, bond prices collapse. So what they have to do, because they manage one of the largest balance sheets on earth, so if they own like 30-year bonds and there is inflation, 30-year bond prices fall a lot and they get this massive haircut. If they go straight to cash, even though over the next six months, they'll, they'll, the, the value of that cash goes down by the rate of inflation, essentially, but they're going to lose less money than any long. So they're just talking about one bet. It's not like they have the choice of buying crypto instead. They don't. They're JP Morgan. I like how McCullough worded this very much like an exam question. Like, please explain how this strategy is. <laughs> Maybe they write exam questions as their job. Um, what is a likely scenario of crypto if Feds raise rates, combat inflation, and what if they don't? Um, generally speaking, crypto doesn't do well when the central bank balance sheets are not growing. So if they're raising rates, that's probably crypto winter. Um, and I think that's more likely to happen next year and the year after, or certainly the, the year after, 2023, than it is 2022. We'll start transitioning towards that idea, maybe. Who knows? Um, it, this could be a super cycle, and I get some of that view as well, because if we continue with this massive fiscal push for, you know, for retooling the economy, this big green drive, um, you know, universal basic income, stuff like that, we could be on a longer monetary expansion. You may have to correct me because I'm not very smart with this stuff, but <laughs> if the uh, if the Fed doesn't raise rates, but the I guess the long end of the curve decides to go on its own, right, and rates start to go up on like the 30-year uh, due to inflation expectations, what I've, I've heard before people talk about how they may try to introduce various types of yield curve control uh what does that look like? Am I explaining this in any way? Yeah, so really simply, right? This is this weird, fucked up world we're in. So the answer to slow growth is currently printing of money. So let's say growth is going running too hot. What do they do? Well, they don't want rates to go up because it's going to slow the economy down and we go back to square one. So they cap yields, which means they buy. So quantitative easing is buying a fixed amount of bonds at whatever price. Yield curve control is buying an unlimited amount of bonds at a fixed price. Mm. So basically, if if inflation pressures are massive and they say, no, the 10-year yield will not go above 2%, and they end up buying a trillion dollars of 10 years, that's another trillion dollars of printing in the middle of an inflationary pressure. And so that is incredibly bullish Bitcoin, clearly. Gotcha. gotcha. Uh, one other Question. So Japan, sorry, Japan ended up owning sixty percent of sixty five percent of all government bonds because they just the BOJ because it, it said it's not moving over ten basis points. We'll buy everything. Gotcha. Uh, one other macro thing in terms of what people have been talking about recently: Paul Tudor Jones uh, 
equalized Bitcoin as uh, equal weight in his portfolio to gold and cash and commodities, 5% each, and then 80%, I don't know, kind of depends on what the rest of the world decides I need to do. How important is that relative to some of the, the crypto bulls that we've seen in the past in terms of having an impact on institutional money that's looking at the market? I think Paul coming out and saying that he was interested in crypto along with Stan and a bunch of these other guys has given basically every hedge fund the green light. Doesn't mean anything for the institutions. Sure, it helps at the margin. But it basically, if the godfathers of the hedge fund world said, it's got our blessing, it's got the blessing. So everybody's allowed to go and do it. Uh, and I know Paul pretty well. And whatever he says he's doing, Stan is the same. It may vary in the next 10 minutes. So <laughs> I've never seen him have very like tactical. fixed, very, 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 very. Stan can be more structural. Paul is very tactical. So the numbers he's talking about is kind of like in his head, an ideal weighting, not that he necessarily has it. He might have it for his own pool of capital, but he is a trader at heart. So it'll move around. He doesn't care about being short something he loves either. So if he thinks Bitcoin's going to go down, he'll short it too. But overall, what he's trying to signal is he thinks there's more inflation um, and Bitcoin plays a bigger part of it. So you know his, his allocation's gone up. And again, it, that's just a credibility statement because everybody respects him. And he's a good guy. Yeah. That, um, that makes sense. So Paul's just like crypto Kia, but rich. Um, so, um, another, another question from the, the thread is, uh, what's your exit strategy? Um, so the rest of the question don't really make sense, but it says macro plays announced by JP Morgan, Elon, uh, both sitting in cash. Are they planning the next stock, stock market crash? Um, um, my exit strategy changed, changes over time. Um, my idea was I'd trade the cycle like I did last time, and then sidestep crypto winter if it were to occur, and we don't know, and look for other returning assets that work well over that time. That's generally how macro would trade, and I'll probably do some of that. I think there's a whole bunch of opportunities that will come. Um, but also, I think I'll probably just go into more kind of VC and some hedge fund strategies within the crypto space as well, just because... You know, I think, you know, Kobe, you were talking about as well, is really it's it's at the shitty point of the cycle. You actually want to be investing in the in the in the interesting stuff. It's not in the bull market that you really want to do it. So, you know, I think you need to focus on trying to find these interesting things earlier on when nobody wants them. But meanwhile, trying to make some money elsewhere as well, while this kind of chops around or sells off or whatever it's going to do. Yeah, one of the beautiful things about these crypto bubbles is that they bring attention and talent as well as money. So yeah, the valuations go crazy, but now there's a bunch of projects starting that um, where people are like following their passion, doing stuff that they would never have done. You know, artists who have had access to NFTs and capital for the first time in maybe their entire career, who now can say, oh, I can realize this vision that um, I've had since I was born. I always wanted to do this with my art. And now they can, they figured out some way to fund it um, through to people like, you know, um, pure developers who say, wait, I can build this crazy thing I want to build because these people will now fund me because there's so much attention and capital in this space. And what's really fascinating now, and you've seen it in this last correction, is even though everyone kind of pisses around on Twitter freaking out, nobody actually cares. A bunch of you know Asian 100x traders got stopped out. But even they don't care. Most of them laugh about it. 
Um, so I don't think the space really cares about the volatility any longer. And I think everybody involved in the space has made such a good job of telling people about the cycle that I don't think even institutions are going to be put off. So I think that, yeah, people just put their heads down and get on with their building of stuff. And I think we reached tipping point this cycle because of the explosion of DeFi. It's just now become this, again, another supermassive black hole of talent. So it's not just capital now, it's talent as well. And I don't think anybody now would be freaked out by the market going down 90% or I think I think people would be more freaked out if it traded sideways for a year and a half. I think that would kill everybody because yeah, well, people are so used to living off adrenaline. That's what it makes me think. If everybody says like, well, this is exactly how the cycle works, doesn't that um, incentivize the cycle not working the same way in the future? Time to or everybody takes some chips off the table again, expecting the cycle. Yeah, uh, and who and knows? End up under- makes it happen faster, makes it more reflexive. Yeah, both 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 make sense. Um, both make sense. So another couple of things that people wanted us to ask about is one was BlackRock buying every single American home um, and making people permanent renters. So I don't know if you've read too much about this. Yeah. I've only read a little bit about it. But yeah. Apparently, the hedge funds are buying up all the houses. So, who are BlackRock? They're an institutional asset manager that happens to run money for pension funds. It's actually everybody's pension plan that's buying these, and you're renting them off yourself. <laughs> so BlackRock is not an investor in its own right. It's not like some, you know, it's not like Mark Cuban going out and buying stuff. And it's, I mean, it's Mark. Act- yeah, it's actually representing pension plans or insurance companies. So it's kind of this scares it, it's me. It's not quite. It it's not what. <laughs> Go ahead. It's not what people think, right? But to have this institutional ownership of the these markets, I think, also makes sense. The reason they're doing it is again this issue with Fed balance sheet purchasing power, and most Americans, you know, have been priced out of the housing market, but a lot of Europeans did too. It's only the UK that's a big owning market. Well, UK, maybe Spain. Our owner markets: Germany, France, Scandinavia. They're all renter markets. Um, And what happens is, if you don't own your property, it's not the end of the world. You just have to invest in something else. You know, it's about having an asset. As long as you've got a roof over your head, that's the biggest problem solved. So, yeah, look, I don't like it, but I think it's a function of the world we live in, and I don't think it's a function of BlackRock being evil. I think it's a function of pension plans with no yields trying to pay. Um, but, um, retirees with money that they don't have. Uh, it's a mess. It's a mess. And a lot of this has come because of the monetary printing. Yeah, they. Uh, that rhymes a lot and to me uh, with what led to the mortgage crisis. I know there's a lot more backstops and stuff to prevent that exact type of crisis from occurring again. But we did have uh, Kern Lord in the chat ask what you think of Michael Burry, who is famous, of course, for calling that bubble. So I'm curious, do you... Do you have concerns about um, those types of real estate bubbles? What was it like in Canada and Australia? They never even had the same housing crisis as we did. They just continued on. And um, and then what's your opinion of, of Michael Burry? Well, I don't think with the housing crisis, I don't think the central bank will have it again. I think everyone's looking at the past problem and not a future problem. The future problem will be something else. Also, again, divide the like the Schiller case price index for, for – um, Equities uh, for real estate Versus by the, the Fed balance system. sheet, and they've gone sideways, right? So it's not it's a it's an illusion. It's an illusion. The problem is, is wages haven't gone up. That's the problem here. 
is wages are screwed by demographics, technology, um, globalization, you know, and a few other things has made it hard for wages to go up. There's too many people in the labor force because there's the baby boomers and the millennials at the same, same time, the two largest cohorts in history, competing with each other for jobs. It's crazy. So it's kind of, that's, that's the issue here. I don't think that leads to a housing crisis. In fact, you know, pension, pension companies owning property is probably a safer place because it's less leveraged um, than individuals owning too much property. Yeah. Uh, I guess Michael Burry said something yesterday about like this being the biggest bubble the big, of all bubbles. And Yeah, and he's right, but I think he's looking at the wrong thing. The bubble is in fiat currency. Yeah, and he actually there's too, there's I think too much of like it. That's the Omega, bubble. I think he's like Omega short Tesla right now and some other stuff, like trying to call. And I think and I think people are getting this all wrong. And I got it wrong for a long time. Like I'm the best, the clearest example is this is this exponential age network effects stuff that I talk a lot about. I got it so wrong because Amazon, right? Back in like 2010, something like 2010, Amazon was worth more than all the books ever sold on earth before, now maybe earlier 2010, maybe 2007, right? Then every book ever sold and all the book companies added together, Amazon basically just sold books. And I'm like, what the fuck? How can this have a P of 700? This is ridiculous. It's a bubble. Everyone's an idiot. I'm the genius. I know how to value these things. And I was completely dead wrong because it was never a bookseller. It was just the first foray into creating a massive network effect business model, unlikes of which the world had never seen. Um, I think Tesla's the same story. I don't think it's a car company. And that's what the market, the share price is telling you. Um, you and that to me is interesting. the largest energy company or what, do you, what, what kind of company is it? It's Who knows? Power because the that, Grimes metaverse, mate. It's going to power the Grimes metaverse. Like the Grimes met- there we go. We don't know. Do they crack autonomous uh, vehicles? Well, that's whoever cracks that's worth a couple of trillion. Whoever cracks, um, you know, all of this kind of, don't forget, they own all the data of all of these cars and the networking of cars together. That's an extremely valuable thing. The battery technology is extremely valuable. A lot of the, I mean, who knows what the breakout thing is there, but it's basically a bunch of call options on the future. So I I, I get it. I mean, I'm not long Tesla. And, you know, we, we understand he's a bit of a showman and a scrapper in how he does stuff and he stays close to the wind, but he's sitting on a bunch of options. Yeah. And a, that's fascinating. And to be fair, he did do it from, I think, the top. So he'll probably be all right. Um, so <laughs> I, I have a question that's more around populism, maybe. Um, you know, rich people like you and Kobe, y'all know how to stay rich or get richer. Um, people who are invested have this ability to take advantage of the macro environment that you just discussed. The person who's trying to pay the mortgage, and even though it's a pretend inflation of that mortgage, to them, like you said, their wages have not gone up. Um, I I believe this has led to a lot of the populism that we see in the world on both sides. Um, How can a regular person take advantage of these changing macro variables to not get totally screwed in all this? Yeah, I mean, I wrote a long, long long article about this called The Reason for Everything – And it was basically this. The fact why this has all happened is for all of the reasons we talked about before, wages haven't gone up. And that's made people feel poorer. And, well, they are actually poorer. Now, sure, you could afford more, you know, loaves of bread because that's gone down in price because technology has destroyed the price of food. But overall, the price of things that make you wealthier over time by owning assets 
have become disproportionately expensive. So how do you solve for this? Unless you're an entrepreneur, it's almost impossible. It's, you know, that is a problem. So people have to do side gigs and they have to, you know, drive an Uber and then they have to do something else. And it's hard, right? Because you know, you're working huge hours just to say the same. What I'm passionate believer in is this tokenization model is going to change that. So if you are a Gen Z and you come into your savings life, by the time that they start saving, by the time they hit 30, where the kind of core of the millennials are now, the millennials have just become financialized. You can see it on mass, right? The rise of Robin Hood, all of this is the, is the millennials becoming financialized. That will happen to Gen Z, and they'll be about 30 years old, same as baby boomers were, and everybody is. It's always the same age. Everyone gets married, has kids, and has to figure their shit out. Um, so these Gen Zers are going to be able to tokenize real estate. So no longer is the hedge fund dude able to buy something in Fifth Avenue for $50 million, which is unavailable to anybody else. You'll be able to fractionally own part of it. So the hedge fund dude can have X percent of his assets in it, 3% of his assets, and so can the Gen Z who's earning you know, a couple of grand a month. That's game changing because then you're putting everyone in a level playing field for creating wealth. It's the same with art, the same with classic cars, the same with real estate, the same with cryptocurrency, all of these things. So anybody can create a basket of these assets that have made rich people rich in the same proportion. That is a huge difference. Yeah, I can certainly see how a, a decent segment of the population really has a chance to, to make up for it there. But that's definitely the segment of the population that's quite tech savvy or willing to go down that route. The the part that really worries me personally for future generations or, you know, like mine and Kobe's generation even is the people who make real things in the world, right? Like they touch things, build things. Like how did, how did they figure out how to... Well, we've seen that movement in Japan. Japan's really interesting when you go over there is what happened is the robots took over mass production and artisan production went to humans. Um... And I think that's that'll be the case too. And I think there's a place for that. And I think that's great. If we can in- encourage artisan stuff, and we've seen it, you know, the, the 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 millennial generation did a really good job of, you know, artisanal bakers or um, clothing shops and stuff like that. And that little entrepreneurial small business is the essence of a, of so many businesses. Now you can sell them online now, and that's okay too. But that that is great. That the general job in retail and stuff like that that's going and you know that's not going to be easy that transition is why universal basic income because nobody's figured out a better way to deal with this you either stop technology yes it's impossible not to do whether anybody likes it or not because if not you've got populism in it's ugly do you think that the introduction of central bank digital currencies and an enforcement of like money that burns itself will be paired with universal basic income so that you yeah, can't hoard? I, I think without question, you once you let the genie out of the bottle of central bank digital currencies, you let out the genie of behavioral economics. And behavioral economics and giant data sets allow you to um, behaviorally affect outcomes. Now, everyone jumps to the nefarious, they're going to be big brother and they'll do this. 
the actual thing is you can solve a lot of economic problems that interest rates don't solve. Uh, and I'm, I'm, for one, really excited by this development because I think you can deal specifically with specific groups who need specific help or people who don't need that specific help. Uh, and you can create better, more dynamic distributions. So some people can have negative interest rates and others can have 15% interest rates. So, so uh, Ledger, to what you were talking about is there's a bunch of really distri- disproportionately screwed people well, you can now massively affect the outcomes without having to go through this stupid government, um, you know, legislation mess that goes through creating this where it never really actually happens. And then the other government un- undoes it. You can directly put money or incentives into wallets. Yeah, it's the trickle, trickle down economics doesn't have to exist in that example because you're just direct and injecting. It- it, it never worked. Trickle down economics was was invented by rich people who wanted to go richer. It never tri- it never trickled down. Yeah, this um sounds kind of sounds like it's from a Huxley book, but it is fifty fifty in my mind whether it's Brave New World or the Island. Like, <laughs> I, I can see the sort of utopian side of it where all these problems can be solved, and like I can see that theoretically. But then I also think about the people that work in government and work in policy today, and um, I just think of Boris Johnson like fumbling around, and uh, you know the the staffers that um uh that like you know. They failed their uh, Goldman interview and, like, they ended up working in government and then, you know, just like... But I think that's... I think it's right. I mean, it's, it's going to be 50-50. And it's... So there is no answer, right? Humans are just basically awful creatures and we create the same mistakes time and time and time again and we can't be trusted. And um, so here we're given a new superpower and we abuse it. Because that's what we do. I actually think there's, at least in the U.S., there were it was a group of people who got, I mean, just unbelievably royally screwed in all the stimulus and, every, and un- unemployment benefits and stuff. And it was people who were perhaps working or trying to work, but they were underworked. They weren't officially employed, so they never qualified for unemployment. Um, they were also difficult to access if they'd never filed taxes, so therefore they didn't get stimulus. I know people who have, like, zero dollars to their name and they got they didn't qualify or couldn't get access to any of the stimulus any of the unemployment that existed and they're like the people who needed it absolutely the most and they got zero um and yet we've extended these programs and you know i call a restaurant and you can't even get an order for takeout or something because they don't have enough people staffing the restaurant because and part of this and I, i know there's a pushback on it but a part of this is because Government has not digitized. There's no reason they shouldn't know this stuff. There's no reason you should be filling in paperwork. People say, well, you know, the government doesn't have a right to know. Of course, they know everything about you. And if they don't, they'll get it from Google. So that war of privacy was lost years ago. So this stuff shouldn't happen. It's just bad administration and the digital world needs to eat the government world. And I think it will come. And it's a, it's a, it's across the board too. I uh, that's where I was trying to get to is like if everybody has a wallet, then you can you can essentially get a birth certificate and like a digital wallet identity sure. for your financial life. Um, so in in India they've got this right. So I don't know if you guys have been following this story, but you know it's a it's like a bigger story than crypto because there's one point three billion people that got given biometric um, identification. That biometric identification called an ADAR number. That ADAR number is either retina scan or fingerprint. It links directly to your bank account. 
So you now and your KYC documentation, so you can go and open a mobile phone or a bank account with a fingerprint and transfer across. They then built a payments platform called UPI. Uh, I think it was Universal Payments Interface. That is like a lightning speed, um, no middleman system. So instantaneous payments from your mobile phone to each other. And then you've got uh, this thing, India Stack, which is this whole stuff where you can store all of your information about yourself in it, including your medical records. So then if you get run over by a car with a fingerprint, you can release it. That's where it's all going, is this centralized ability to have all of your stuff, because it's madness that we got driver's licenses I, and fucking bank accounts. and Yeah, I don't know how bad it is where y'all live, but for us, like you go anywhere, any type of doctor, you're filling out the same crap every single time. It's like, how can you not just touch a button or like tap your phone on something and share your medical record? And that's like that solves trillions of dollars worth of medical I mean, problems. And the bureaucracy I mean, you there is insane. You try getting a work permit in the Cayman Islands or opening a bank account. It is a nightmare of bureaucracy. Um, and it takes weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks of producing the same old stuff that they've already seen. And then they reject it because it was in the wrong ink this time. And your signature went off the corner box. It's like, it's madness. Liber- so all of this is going to change. Libertarians in the chat are absolutely furious at us right of now. Of course they are. And I, <laughs> and I get it. But my argument with the libertarians about this is you lost that battle years ago with Google and Facebook. Yeah. And they, Google has, the fact is, that governments can get information about you anyway. And what are you actually hiding? That you're not paying as much tax as you should or, you know, you know, it's, it's not that relevant compared to what Google know about you. They know what porn you watch. They know that you've Googled how to poison your brother because he pissed you off. They've, they know every single thing about you. They even know where you are. So I've got Nest here in the house to, to operate um, temperature control. Why did Google buy that? Do they care about the temperature of my home? No, because Nest tells me, tells them where I am in my house. Because when I come in my house, what do I do? Put my phone down. So now they stop tracking me. They now know what room I'm in, when I sleep, when I wake up, when I leave the house, when I go on holiday. That's what the Apple Watches are about. That's what all of this is about. So we lost this war about privacy so long ago, people didn't realize it. Um, and if if Google has more information on more company on more people than any entity on earth, do you not think the government knows that? So this is basically a state enterprise now, as AWS is a state enterprise, um, as many of these things are key infrastructure plays. It's no different than Alibaba in China. We just dress it up and pretend it's different. Bring in some heat. Uh- is there any hope for any of these social issues or, you know, what you just talked about with like the corporatocracy of the world? Can, can crypto help fix any of this or bring back privacy for individuals or some of the things that, um, you know, we, we've lost? Uh, yes, I think so. And I think that, that, that there, there, there is an ability to have these wallets that are encrypted that run on crypto rails where you've got um, – Sorry, somebody keeps trying to call me. Um, Well, you've got tokenized access to it all. I think that's right. And I think if you can shift it to yourself, now, sure, if a government entity asks you to produce it, you're going to have to produce it. But if you own it yourself, you own your online identity, and you can have multiple identities and multiple personas online, but they all link to the same thing so they can be authenticated. I think that's a better world for everybody. 
Um, so I think the private sector will try and solve this. The private sector's currently solved it by giving all the data to Google and Facebook. They're going to have to solve it in Web 3.0 by giving it back to us. And the governments will have to accept that in certain extents. They will own some of that bits of information and others will be encrypted so we can share it whenever we want to share it and to monetize it in how we want to monetize it and not let Facebook monetize it themselves without our permission. I hope that that like can win. I like you did this uh, large, not anti-Google rant, but like, you know, talking about the reality of Google, I guess. Then your phone immediately started ringing. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> they're listening right now and they're not happy with you, mate. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, what else you got? So we've been streaming for about an hour and a half. So um, and I know that you have a, a, a meeting in, a, in, in not too long. So um, we can wrap it up shortly. I've got a couple more questions. The first thing I want to know is, how do you feel about the Michael Saylor just like sell everything he owns, raise debt, sell, uh, sell equity, like mortgage your house, just own Bitcoin? Um, is he a madman? Is he going to make it? The point being is that this is and this is not going to sound nice <laughs> try to get ready to clip it it doesn't matter to him he's a billionaire <laughs> he either makes himself this reputation and becomes one of the richest ceos in the world or he loses the whole company in the, in this and he's still a billionaire misaligned incentives yeah Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. He's trying to get to the uh, to the the, the call table, maybe. Um, I mean, I don't think he's. Enough. I don't think he's. You know, I, I don't think it's a stupid bet, but I understand it can go horribly wrong. But to him, it doesn't actually just matter. for everybody else involved in his life. Yeah, I appreciate his commitment to the complete degeneracy and his uh, <laughs> sort of perpetual doubling down. Just when you think he can't, like. He can't do it again. He does it again over and over. I appreciate that. I, I like that he's not LARPing about his, like, sort of um, psychopathic uh, commitment to just buying forever and just holding it forever. I like So he, he's also, he's figured out what Elon figured out and Kathy Wood figured out and a bunch of these people have, Chamath figured out, which is if you create yourself as the central character within the story you basically get unlimited access to capital. Um, and so he's, he's done that. He's now created a mythology around himself. And guess what? Most of those people won in the end because they, they, they couldn't go bust because they had a community behind them. And Taylor's done that. In that way, it's pretty smart. Right, that's the blueprint I'm following for my Oasis company, my Oasis Theranos scam. I'm just going to go big and talk about it all the time, go make some fake videos. Um, the final, we got two questions, but the final question from the Twitter thread, uh, it don't make, I don't, it don't make sense to me. I don't know if this is something you spoke about before or if they're just memeing, but it asks you to explain the difference between the soul and the spirit. I have no way that <laughs> idea where that comes from. All right, I've, I was hoping that this was a topic you spoke at at length. No. My mind was about to get blown. Um, right. No, because so, it says on my on my Twitter bio it says I am not a guru, so that that would be kind of in the guru category, right? All right, that's that's. Uh, I'll save that for when I'm talking about the Oasis and I've separated the soul from the spirit. That's and right. This in the metaverse. And the Maybe that's the killer app, right? Yeah. So this is where your spirit can live free of your soul, whatever that means. That it does sounds sound good, cool, right? 
I think that is actually in the Cardano marketing tools already. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the question we ask at the end of every episode to uh, all our guests is for a uh, like a, a teaching, a piece of wisdom, a piece of alpha uh, that you find yourself often reflecting on in your life. So like something that makes you feel uh, makes that you've like keep coming back to. Um, and you've applied perhaps through your life, make you more fulfilled, make you happier, healthier, make you feel more smart, maybe make you richer, who knows? Just something to pass on to our listeners who've made it through this entire uh, one hour, 35, 50 seconds episode. Uh, something that can they can take away and apply to their own life so and, the, and then we're all going to make it. So the best investment you can make in yourself is travel. And travel to places outside of your comfort zone. I'm not talking about, oh, I've traveled down to St. Bart's and we went to a party. That's not travel. There's something called the comfort zone and something called where the magic happens. And it's nowhere near the comfort zone. That is the secret to life, is you become a broader, more understanding. Your eyes are open to more opportunities. You see things in different ways and you're not influenced as directly by others. Travel is the greatest education you could ever invest in. And guess what? Costs you pretty much nothing to get on a plane, get down to Nicaragua and backpack around for two weeks and tell me that hasn't changed your life. It will do. Bro, you're Thanks so much. Me, uh, you're going to make me lose my co-host. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for being here. That was one of my favorites yet i think appreciate you uh, roll so much go to realvision.com check it out if you enjoyed this and of course follow Raul on uh, twitter we'll share the links and all that stuff thank you so much to blockfolio for being our partner in this episode and all episodes you can track your portfolio you can trade from one asset to the other all that good stuff you know what to do up only.tv slash blockfolio thanks so much bye bye